Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? I don't know if that's appropriate uh, theme song for me. I like to think Jesus and I have our, 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 have, certainly have a thing going, but uh, I need a lot of help. And that guy, he, he seems to have figured it all out, so good for him. Not this guy, though. Well, good morning. I hope you're thinking. How was Thanksgiving? Great. Great. All right. One person, at least, had a fantastic Thanksgiving. So someone had at least one delicious meal as well, too. How about the rest of you? A lot to be thankful for, probably, yeah? You ate one plate. I hope you didn't eat the silverware with that plate. Bad joke, guys, sorry. And we have someone from Chicago who pointed out that the Bears won, which was a Thanksgiving miracle, actually. So um, I want to talk about something today that I don't know what you think about when it first comes to mind. So uh, prayer, big topic, right? When you hear the word prayer, what is the first thing that comes to mind? You can shout it out or you can just think in your own head. Think for a moment. It's a necessity. I know for me, when I think of prayer, lots of times I think of, uh, for example, a gentleman that I once read about named Reese Howell. When I was, I think, 19 years old, my dad gave me this book. And it's interesting because I was thinking about it just this morning. When he gave me the book, he said, you know, Brad, this is a great book. It's inspiring. But he also said, I don't ever want to read it too often because it makes me feel really bad about myself. I thought, huh, that's interesting. It was a book called Rees Howell Intercessor. And it's a story about a very uh, famous like, prayer person uh, if I remember the details right, was very, uh, in, uh, very uh, involved in, I think it was the Welsh revival and seeing that happen uh, a couple hundred years ago. And the way it supposedly started was there was this one guy, uh, according to the biography, who prayed. But he didn't just pray, he prayed a lot. In fact, he prayed so much that one of the details in the book was that he actually developed calluses on his knees from kneeling so much. This is how much this guy prayed. Now, when I read this book, and a lot of things I heard over the years, my first thought was that quantity, the amount of time that I spent in prayer must be really, really important because people like Reese Howell, they prayed two or three hours a day. And as a very sincere, I think, 19, 20-year-old, I wanted to know God more. I wanted to connect very literally and very practically with the presence of God. I didn't just want to have a spiritual life that was all formulaic or all ritualistic or all out here or all in my head. I thought if, if there is a real God who is alive, I want to connect with that. I want to connect with that person because my thought was if there's a divine orchestrator, um, if I can connect with that person, that would change everything in my life. So I wanted to connect with God. So I thought, what I need to do then is I need to pray a lot more than what I'm praying right now. And so I started trying to pray a lot more. You know, and when I was uh, back, I, I think I was actually I might have been visiting my family for the holidays. So when I went back, uh, I was living in Chicago at the time, go Bears, and uh, and I started trying to pray more. And I did this, and a funny thing happened. I developed a reputation as the guy who fell asleep in weird places. 
So people would find me sleeping in closets. They'd find me sleeping on my floor. They'd find me sleeping on the bathroom floor. They'd find me sleeping in chairs. And basically, they didn't realize that what they were doing is they were finding young, passionate Brad falling asleep wherever it was I decided to settle down and try and pray. Where's Brad? I don't know. Has anyone checked the closet? was said more than once in the house I lived with eight other guys. And they go, sure enough, to be like, oh, we should probably wake him up because he has to get up early. And I'd be in this closet asleep. I remember one time um, I was sitting cross-legged and I was in my bedroom. It was just me in the house. And I heard the phone ringing in the living room. And I had sat down to pray. And a funny thing happens when you sit cross-legged for a long, 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 long time. Sometimes it can cut off the circulation flow to your feet. And so it wasn't just that my feet had fallen asleep. They were like, I couldn't feel, they were like rubber, gush. So when the phone rang, I thought, I got to get it. I jumped to my feet and collapsed on my face because it was like I had no feet. So I would just fall asleep wherever I was. And I had a little bit of a reputation for that. And maybe some of you can relate to my story at some point in your life. Um, you had some inkling that maybe God's real. You thought, well, if God's real, maybe I should try and pray. And so you started off and thinking, well, probably the more I pray, the better, right? Or maybe you're hungry for more of God's presence. So you started praying. And so you've tried to pray and you've thought, the more I pray, the better, so I'll pray a lot. And the focus, at least in some ways, whether you realize it or not, became um, how much you prayed. And the question you often found yourself asking yourself is, am I praying enough? Am I spiritual enough? Am I disciplined enough? Am I good enough to pray well? You start out wanting to pray more and find yourself maybe even praying less or hating to pray or or trying to get away from prayer because every time you do, you feel like you're failing. You don't connect. Maybe you're like me, you fall asleep. What's the opposite of connecting with God? It might be falling asleep, right? So today I want to talk about that. We're starting a series that's called God With Us because this is the first week of Advent. You'll notice extra candles, um, poinsettias. It's the season of Christmas in the church calendar. It's called the season of Advent. And during Advent, we take four weeks to consider the coming of Jesus into the world as a human being. The theological term for that is incarnation. God becoming a person. Uh, God with us is one of the ways you'll see in Scripture this whole thing described. So during these four weeks leading up to Christmas itself, we are going to look at this idea of God with us, but not just theoretically. We'll talk about ideas, but we want to try and talk about and do some really practical things and practice some spiritual practices as ways to actually connect with a God who wants to be present with us, who wants to be present with us to the point that during the whole season of Advent, we remember that God became a person, literally came into the presence of humanity as one of our own, and that that same God doesn't want that to be that one-time occurrence, but he did it in part, among a million other things, to make a way for us to be in his presence continually. 
no matter where we are or what's happening in our life. So this series, God With Us, is going to be about spiritual practices that we can hopefully practice to help us develop lifestyles, patterns, ways of connecting with the actual presence of God. All right? So this week we're going to start by talking about prayer. And what I'm hoping is I can give you some ways to think about prayer and ways to practice prayer that can be encouraging, life-giving, can be more than about just quantity, but can be about quality. And today we're going to talk about how we can find God in time, in our lives, through time, through rhythm. To do that, I want to start by, I'm going to read you a a plethora of scriptures today. We're not looking at just one passage this week, but we're looking at a broader theme. Then we're going to look at an invention, a pattern, and a life-giving goal that I think can help us with this. I think one good scripture to start with is one you may have heard before. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, which says simply, pray continually. So, if you're listening to this intro to this talk today, you can probably think, oh, I I can see where Brad would get this idea that the more I pray, the better. And in some ways, I do think the more you pray in the right context, the better, right? So here's this verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says, pray continually. In Acts chapter 1, there's more talk like this. It says, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes to a church in Thessalonica, and he says this, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and continues from there. And in these passages and other passages like this, we see a real value for continuous prayer, or praying constantly is sometimes translated. Now, if you've ever been a little discouraged in your attempts at prayer, This is probably the last thing you want to hear. Pray more. Pray constantly. And if you're struggling in this area of your life or you've never been able to connect in prayer, your response is probably a three-letter word, ugh. That's what I already knew, Brad. Thanks a lot. A friend of mine who writes on topics of prayer and stuff like this, his name's Ken Wilson. Uh, I don't know if he said this first, probably not, but I heard him say it or write it, and it stuck with me. He said that when anything is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. All right? So if you are terrible at prayer, and that's part of who you think you are, great. If prayer is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Maybe that you don't want to do it. That's not where you want to land forever, but it's a great starting point. And I want to say also that I feel like with these passages and this prayer, con- prayer continually passage or pray constantly, I haven't always done a great job with that. What I've done is I've sort of thought of that, oh man, that makes me feel bad and guilty because I don't pray constantly. So what am I going to do? So I think of it in terms of this sort of con- conversational prayer thing. And, I, and I've told myself, you know what? I'm always praying. And, and there's, a, there's a part of this that's true. Like uh, as my day goes on, if something happens... Maybe I see something, a beautiful sunrise. I'll say, oh, God, wow, that's beautiful. And I just pray in my own heart, in my own mind, sometimes out loud to God. Something bad happens. I'll say, someone cuts me off. This is simple, right? I'll say, oh, God, help me not just to lay on the horn right now because all I want to do is tell this person what a bad, bad, bad person they are. 
give me patience. Give me patience is a prayer that happens throughout the day. Sometimes I say it out loud, sometimes it's in my head. And these things happen all the time. I might just be strolling along on my way between meetings or something, and I'll just pray about something that's on my mind. You know, and I think there's, people call that conversational prayer. I think that there's something really good about that. It's a part of my life, and it's probably part of a lot of your lives. I don't think that's exactly what they're talking about here. I think there's two problems with my approach, and when I see praying constantly like that, it's that, one, there's a lot of pressure in praying constantly, so I'm just trying to let the pressure out a little bit. And two, it's like really lowering my expectations of what I actually expect from praying to God. Because most of those things are just me giving God shout-outs. Here's what's on my mind. There's not a lot of interaction there. And honestly, there's not a lot of connection either. Because I'm not really slowing down. There's no conversation in that conversational style of prayer. It's more just like Brad's bullet points to God. This isn't bad. And I think God's happy to hear from me. You know, I think he's listening. But I feel like I'm just trying to release the pressure sometimes when I think of prayer that way and that my bar is getting really low for what connecting with God actually is. I think that when the early church father, Paul, wrote these instructions, though, and I think this can help us understand this, I think he's actually using something that we do all the time. Um, people are in, the liter- uh, in the literature would call this a literary technique called argument ad absurdum which basically means he's overstating slightly uh, the way that he lives that anyone reading or listening would understand. So, for example, if I told you right now, I am, uh, dude, I am constantly watching Breaking Bad, right? I'm so into that show. I'm watching it all the time, constantly. You would know that at this moment, I'm not actually watching Breaking Bad, right? It's an expression. I'm constantly, I'm constantly reading Shakespeare these days, guys, all the time, constantly. I'm not, it doesn't mean like in between here I have written the sonnets of Shakespeare, and as I turn the page, I just read a little bit, you know, because I love it so much. It just means like when I get a spare moment, you know, I'm really into it. I'm doing it a lot. I'm doing it continually, and when I get chance at intervals, but it doesn't mean literally at every split second I'm reading Shakespeare watching Breaking Bad, Right? I think this is obviously part of what Paul is doing here. It's a literary convention. It's a, a figure of speech. It's a way to talk to say that I, you know, it's on my heart. I'm praying. I'm at intervals. I'm taking moments. I'm setting aside time to do this very important thing. You know, I think that maybe the way that we can pray that could be more life-giving for us and less guilt-ridden and m- with higher levels of expectation would be to think about praying continually a little bit differently. I think what Paul wants is his readers, his hearers, to develop an ongoing rhythm of their lives where they're recurrently and frequently and without stopping praying, and it's built into who they are in their life. (coughs) Here's how I like to talk about it. I feel like when you read the Bible, when you read the Christian scriptures, when you read the Hebrew scriptures... You see a God who invented time with a sacred rhythm. He was super intentional about time. So if you read the first book of the Bible about the creation of things, in Genesis chapter 2 it says, By the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested 
from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work he was doing. And if you read the stories of this pattern of creation, you see, you know, it was, mor- it was morning and it was night on the first day. It was morning and it was night on the second day. <coughs> God works during the day. But there's this rhythm. It's almost like he starts in the morning, he ends at night. He starts in the morning, ends at night. And then he sets a day aside just to rest. So as, this is really the story of God creating time and how the planets would move and what a day would be. And he's doing this. He's creating a rhythm to things. And as part of the rhythm for how things turn and spin is also how God chooses to live. He doesn't need to rest, but he builds in rhythm and the rhythm of rest. There's a sacred rhythm to how creation works, to how you work as a human being. There's a time to work. There's a time to play. There's a time to work. There's a time to rest. There's day. There's night. There's work day, work day, work day, rest day. Time is meant to be a blessing to you. Time was created in a way to give rhythm to your life in a way that you need it. Now, when we think about time, do we normally think of time as a blessing? I don't think that I do. No, I think of things like time as money, right? Or we spend time or we waste time, right? Time is sort of like a resource to be controlled or bought or sold or manipulated But what we see is there's a sacred rhythm to time that's meant to be a blessing to us. Time in my life creates a sense of anxiety, of pressure. I'm always losing time. I'm behind. I'm late. I'm not getting as much done as I want to. It tends to sort of pull me out of the things that would connect me to God. But what I want you to understand is that's not the way it's supposed to be. That wasn't the original intention of time. When God creates time, he creates it with a sacred rhythm to bless humanity, to create up times, down times, rest times, work times, play times, family time, work time. You know, all of these things. There's a rhythm. And we're so pressured by time in our culture that we often lose touch with that. Time is meant to pull us into the presence of God, not pull us out. What if the main point of time isn't to let us know if we're succeeding or failing? What if the main purpose is to provide us rhythm, a sacred rhythm that keeps us in check and connects us with God? What if time is meant to be a blessing? Honestly, what if time is meant to be a blessing to you? In this past week, which has built into it holidays, how much of that week have you spent feeling blessed by the rhythm of time, and how much have you uh, spent feeling pressured to be on time, to have all the food come out when you can all eat it hot at the same moment? How much of Thanksgiving did you spend, and maybe maybe it was 100% for you, enjoying 
The rhythm of holiday and being among family and friends and pigging out. I don't know if I sort of added that last one. And how much was spent feeling pressure to get things done. And I think what God intended when he created time and when he blessed the Sabbath and throughout history was something that people have tried to connect to, a rhythm. And we see a pattern. So we talked about an invention, we saw a theme and invention, and now let's see a pattern. And that's just that the people in the, in the Bible lived with a sacred rhythm. So it can be done. I don't think I'm that great at it, I'll be honest. But what we see is people who lived with sacred rhythm, who lived with patterns in their lives. And you can see them described in the daily lifestyles of people in the Bible. So in Daniel chapter 6, it says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, three times a day, and prayed. Psalm 55 says, Evening, morning, and noon I cry out in my distress. Psalm 119 says, Seven times a day I pray. I praise you for your righteous laws. And here we see people from the Bible finding a sacred rhythm to their lives through structured prayer at intervals throughout the day. And by the time of Jesus, prayer at intervals had become a regular part of the Jewish religious tradition. So bells would ring seven times a day, and they were reminders. Here's a moment to pray, to step back, to connect. It would be 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 3 p.m., dinner before bed. Time was pulling them into God's presence rather than pulling them away. You know, one of the things I value before I go any further, I actually really value extended times of prayer. I don't want to give the wrong impression. I don't think it's bad to pray for a long time. I mean, heavens no, right? That's, that, that can be awesome. And I'm not saying quantity is bad either. I know at certain seasons in my life, for years, I realized I needed a rhythm where I stepped back. And I would take a day a month and go to a local abbey and spend that day in prayer. So in the morning, I would meet with a spiritual director. He would give me ideas for how to pray during the day. And I would go and try those things. And it was renewing for me. It was a part of the sacred rhythm of my life. So extended times of prayer certainly can be really awesome things. And you should try things like that. If you haven't, I think you'll benefit. But it seems to me that many times we get the the picture of prayer that it has to be long periods. And if it's anything less than, say, I don't know, 30 minutes, we're wimping out. We're not committed. And I've thought in those terms before. But that isn't what we see people in the Bible doing. It's not that they don't ever take time away or long experience times. Think... I think it would be helpful to think of prayer like this. You can think of it like eating. So let's say we need about 2,000 calories a day. All right? We can sit down and have one giant 2,000-calorie meal. Or just a Big Mac, one of the, one of the two, right? <laughs> so you can have one huge meal, which is kind of what we do on Thanksgiving. And how do you feel afterwards and for the rest of the day? Kind of slow getting out of there, right? And then you tend to sort of crash, right? So what do we normally do? We eat smaller meals throughout the day 
at planned intervals. Most of us probably eat our meals at just about the same time every day. That doesn't mean some of them aren't larger than others, but it's planned intervals throughout the day to keep us going. What if prayer is something like that? And if we had intervals in our lives where we connected regularly, consistently, continually, where we could feed our souls in an ongoing way instead of feeling like we have to gorge ourselves or nothing else. Taking nothing away from an awesome prayer retreat. I did, a seven, I did an eight-day silent retreat once. It was the worst and best thing I ever did. <laughs> some of it was awesome. Some of it was really hard for my personality, which was a good thing. And I think for most people, this consistent interval way of connecting can be incredibly freeing and powerful and keep us connected to God. So let me suggest that we can develop and reclaim certain rhythms in prayer without becoming rote or simply ritualistic. I think one of the ways I'm suggesting that you try and pray this week is something that in my tradition we really looked down on growing up, praying at intervals. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. I don't know why, but it just seemed religious and ritualistic. And in the tradition I grew up in, it was all about spontaneity. You know, if you planned out something, it's somehow the Holy Spirit was offended. You know, you don't, you don't plan prayer. It has to come from your heart in the moment, right? Intervals during the day, oh, that sounds so religious. And those cultures where they ring bells and pray at different points, and oh, that's not what we do here. You know what I'm saying? And there's a little bit of extra stuff that gets mixed in there, too. There's sort of like all the ritualistic things. There's a cultural thing, too. Because other cultures around the world, they have calls to prayer. And we start to think, oh, that's what they do in other parts. That's what they did in the Bible. Seven times a day I pray. Bells would ring. People would go to the temple. And what I want you to understand is the goal is not to be religious. It's to find God in time. To connect. Which is this thing that many of you who've been burned by prayer are born out That's what you wanted in the first place was to connect with God. So let me suggest that we can develop and reclaim certain rhythms in prayer without becoming rote or ritualistic if you have the right goal in mind. Here's the goal. The goal is finding God in time. And this is what I think the people the Bible were modeling as they set aside time at intervals to pray. This is where after taking the pressure to pray for long periods of time off, we can also raise the bar of our expectations. Here's where we can look to actually connect with the living God of the universe periodically throughout the day. Not just throwing up a word here, what comes to mind, but it's intentionality. It's prioritizing. And I think this is what I don't know if you've ever noticed this, because I didn't for years, but a lot of the really big things that happen in the New Testament with the very first Christians, so Jesus' de- his death, his resurrection happens, and he ascends to heaven, he says, wait for the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And then later, you know, this crazy stuff happens, and the, it says, 
that they said, the people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. A lot of scholars feel that these early Christians were gathering for 9 a.m. prayer because that's what they knew how to do from their Jewish tradition. And they were waiting for the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what to do next, so they did what they always knew to do. They gathered at 9 a.m. to pray. And so at an interval prayer time, the Holy Spirit, the greatest turning point in the history of the church, is poured out and power is released. That if you read the whole story, it leads to Christian uh, thought and uh, the faith of Jesus spreading all over the world. Acts chapter 3, the story of the earliest Christians. It says, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. So they were going for 3 p.m. prayer. And what happens? They meet this guy. And uh, he can't walk. And they heal him. And it's a big miracle. makes a huge difference. And people start to wait. Maybe there's something to this. Right? Acts chapter 10, verse 9, it says, About noon... The following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. So Peter goes up on the roof at noontime prayer. And if you don't know the story, what happens is he falls into a trance and has this vision. The Holy Spirit just like overtakes him. And this vision leads to Peter realizing that God's doing something new and it's totally okay to allow Gentiles or non-Jews into the community. So that's probably like 95% of the people in this room, you are included in this whole thing called the faith of Jesus or Christianity or following Jesus because Peter was participating in interval prayer and the Holy Spirit gave him a vision. Three of the most pivotal moments in the history of the church 